Welcome to the Naked Ambition Podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, innovation, and design all over the world. This show is brought to you by the team at Naked Ambition. We are a design-led innovation company, partnering with some of the world's smartest companies to help them solve complex challenges and design new futures. I'm your host, Fiona Triarca. So welcome everyone to this episode of the Naked Ambition podcast. Now this is a podcast where we speak with the people who are making an impact in innovation, design and leadership all over the world. Now I am incredibly excited this week for the guest that we have and that we're bringing you today. Our guest on today's show is Professor Sahail Inayatola. Now, Professor Sahail Inayatola is a political scientist and he's also the inaugural UNESCO Chair in Futures Studies. He's a professor at Temkang University and an associate here at Melbourne Business School. And actually for 2021, he has been the futurist in residence with the Abu Dhabi government for culture and tourism. So welcome, Professor. How are you today? Great, Fiona. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Fantastic. Now, I've read some of your fascinating work. Now, in a lot of it, you say futures is not, the futures work is not about predicting the future. It's about truly what you can change today. Now, for people who are listening to this and are new to futures, can you tell us a little bit about what foresight work involves? So I think if we, a historical phase one, just going back six years or so years ago, was very much prediction forecasting. People want to know what's next. So you had the banking industry, you had intelligence agencies trying to figure out, tell us what the future is going to go. After a while, they figured out that, in fact, you can't do that accurately or precisely, so they developed scenarios. Here are four possible futures. Then even that showed its limits because we're in the future, and what became even more powerful was the narrative or the story behind it. So if I go back when I was a kid, we moved from Peshawar to Indiana in the 1960s. And there was this commercial all the time, put a tiger in your tank. And with the sense that power cars was the future. And it's a great commercial which says our energy company melts 7 million tons of glacier per day. And there was the sense of that was the narrative that, in fact, we're going to defeat nature and so if you now imagine that as a narrative today. So in 1960, predicting that in 2020, the purpose of all civilization is to destroy icebergs, that would be an incorrect prediction. So then you say, well, what are the scenarios? Then actually it went back to what's the story we tell about the future? What's the story we tell about ourselves? So futures has gone from forecasting prediction to scenarios to kind of let's change our narrative as a species, as an individual, personally. What do I need to shift? Collectively, what do we need to shift? So there's been a transition in the last 60 years. So interesting. Speaking of those four scenarios that you mentioned, now last year you published some really interesting work around the four scenarios, the possibilities in 2020 once COVID happened. Can you tell us, you know, what is the COVID pivot now? What were those scenarios? How have they moved on? And what are you seeing right now? We're a bit surprised because usually you get it all wrong, right? You know, a good futurist gets it totally wrong because the forecasts become part of the universe and things change. 
In our case, we're surprised. So scenario one was basically the great pause that uh, lockdowns, et cetera, were so used to running so fast, we slow down and pause for a year. But it's family time, meditation time, prayer time, whatever, it's just slowing down. And then scenario two was basically zombie apocalypse. That there's this virus, it's going to keep on mutating, it's going to, call, to cause disruptions in countries, fragmentation, electoral fraud, a whole range of allegations. And we could really see there's a sense of fear is everywhere. Let's blame someone. So we got conspirituality, the spiritual groups becoming extremely right wing. We had Trump politics. We had Modi. We had Bolsera. So we really saw the zombies are coming. Scenario three was, you know, this is a great health awakening. What takes 20, 30 years to produce vaccines could be done in a year. What used to be only done by individuals could be done by partnerships. You had to go to work. Well, maybe there's hybrid working. And so with one school I was working with right, right in January, they developed their 10-year vision on hybrid education, well-being, trust. And we met again in March. I said, why do you want to meet again? Look, we just did it. This is a 10-year vision. They said, no, what we thought would take 10 years, we did in six months. Wow. They said, we've accelerated everything because we were ready for the future. The three areas have changed. COVID forced us. So my colleague, Anita Hazenberg at Interpol says, futures used to be a nice thing to have. Now it's a must thing to have. And so scenario three was this transformation. Now scenario four is, I think, still there. It's called the great despair. That really, we think we're out of the woods, it mutates again. We think interest rates were stay low, but there's hyperinflation. So our view was we can't really see the future, but looking at the weak signals, here are four possibilities. And I think all four are still current and still useful for us to understand what's next. What about this concept of, so this is the sort of, you know, the, the looking back, I guess, over the last 18 months and then what people are living with now. So for those people that are tuning into this, so innovators, designers and business leaders are thinking about, you know, when they're looking at you, even though we know futures isn't about predicting the future, you know, how do they use these tools or techniques to find some of the answers and do some of the work that you're talking about? What are the sort of the mental models or the frameworks that you use to guide people through this? So, so one is something called emerging issues analysis, which is life is like an S curve. Most people focus on problems. Trend companies focus on trends, quantitative change, and we focus on weak signals. Here are some disruptions that could be quite traumatic. So I've been following those based on our work with, I think, at least 10 countries and about 10 companies saying, look, we're trying to figure this out. And so one weak signal that it's, of course, has been, well, this hybrid education, hybrid learning, that's gone from weak to really a loud sound. And so what seemed impossible, well, everyone said, please fly to our country. I remember I flew to Kazakhstan you know, for one night, 32 hours there, 32 hours back to present now, that would seem strange today. One, it's impossible, but there's a sense, no, actually, it's okay to do this Zoom stuff. So that's a weak signal that we can reorganize society, fewer few carbon emissions. Now, that's led to weak trend two, which is well-being. So I'm working with another government next door. They've developed their 2070 infrastructure plan. This government in New Zealand has been released soon. They said, well, what would it look like if we went from GDP to well-being? 
And it wasn't just measuring the economy, but it was how was infrastructure, not just about roads and buildings, but about the architecture of knowledge, but also about the architecture of community and also about well-being, emotional health, mental health. So suddenly there's a shift. Where do we want to go is partly dependent on what we want to measure. So I could say I want to have a well-being society, but if my main measurement is dollars on the table, well, then I'll work seven days. Take that to a country, what is it that we truly wish to measure? So one is this hybrid learning. Second is this shift to well-being. Now, I've been working with a number of governments on their national tourism strategy. And what jumped out before safe tourism meant you land and you feel safe going from airport to hotel. There's no criminals, right? Taxi driver is nice. You feel safe. I said, well, actually, safe tourism is not about that anymore. Do you trust the country that the rules will be fairly implemented? There won't be a lock on the day you land. <laughs> or suddenly, well, no, yeah, we said you could go to the hotel, but now you can't. You have to leave. Yeah. So safe tourism has been one of the main projects, meaning it's reliable, predictable. You trust the government. You trust the airline that you're not going to get very ill. And if you are going to get ill, there's a health infrastructure to support you. And so now we're trying to develop the future of safe tourism. Now that's gone on further. We're working with a bunch of museums. If we take this hybridity, safety, what do museums look like in 2050, 2070? And so one of the coolest projects, I can't tell you which one because everyone goes to a museum all over the world, mm. was the museum is like an empty mirror. You see, you go in there, you walk in, and you're forced linear sequentially. Here's the paintings, here's the sculptures. Okay, well, let's take redesign the future seriously, meaning individuals wish to play a role in the world they see. They wish it to be safe. They wish it to be carbon neutral. They wish for a greener earth. They want more participation. If those are some of the weak signals we're seeing, and the mirror metaphor was fantastic. When the museum director, she said, aha, mirror, mirror on the wall. Which world do I wish to see after all? Mm. And so the mirror becomes the living mirror. So I get bio data about myself, about the paintings. I get holograms. I can go in and shift the museum as, as I see it. So the curator's role is not just here's history. The curator's role is meeting you where you're at for your museum journey. Mm. And so this is some of the weeks we're seeing whether museums, countries, infrastructure projects, schools or universities. And COVID-19 has given not just a nudge, but a push. And it's not going to work the way we did it before. Mm. And so this, I mean, in the other weeks, and what's very surprising for me is watching, I would say there was a great TikTok video I saw yesterday. The person said, uh, the anti-vaxxers say in one year, I'll be dead. Mm. And then he said, so... I took a vaccine, I'm dead, but imagine Australia where Pete Evans is the prime minister. He says that he, <laughs> and then he said, no, I'd rather be dead. <laughs> and, and, you know, he was, he was, how do we go? And this was the notion that all of us wanted the democratization of knowledge. Mm. Eight billion people are futurists. They all imagine their future. Yeah. So this is futurist literacy globally. And then suddenly everything has this shadow side or the alternative side. Yeah. The alternative side was what, so there's, 8 billion prime ministers and some with no qualifications. So you go to the hospital and instead of a surgeon seeing you, you look at the patients, let's peer to peer network this. Who's best at giving out surgery? Yeah. You're on an air, airplane and you say, well, let's all peer to peer and let's all decide in a Facebook manage who should be the, you know, 
uh, who should be the pilot. Yeah. So this is the kind of the democratization has right. had this sense. Yeah. yeah, it's the overdose. Yes. That's if that's what you're going to say. I never you know, over-democratize, I got... over-democratization yeah. of it. It's like this, we're taking this kind of knowledge share and this fairness of everyone has a voice and everyone has a right to contribute and confusing it with everyone is qualified to contribute at the same level. Perfectly said. And everyone does have the right to contribute. And there's variations. I'm not a pilot. I don't want citizens deciding how to fly. Yeah. Yeah. And this is so so the two things you talked about there. So there's the weak signals and you're talking about some of the ones that specifically you've been tracking as well over the last 12 months. And then what you're talking about there is sort of some of those narratives that we attach, good or bad, that, you know, the positive or the shadow one to some of those signals. And thinking again about, you know, those designers or those innovators, is that the sort of process you know, because you teach this. So there's, you know, MetaFuture schools. You're, we'll talk about that a little bit little bit more. Like what is that kind of framework process that you take people through to do this thinking? So the simple, I mean, I don't want to do deep theory on a podcast, yeah. but it's called yeah. Six Pillars. Yeah. So say you enter a city, you want a map. Yeah. So we create a map of the future. What's the pull? What's the push? What's the weight? However, in our world, the future map is not going to be good for 20 years. Because change is so quick. So then we disrupt the map to the S-curve. So, for example, in food, we're moving towards more organic food. We're also moving towards in vitro cellular agriculture. So that's changing the map of livestock. So that was a crazy idea 15 years ago. Now there's impossible food beyond meat and every other company is jumping into it. So that's a disruption. Now, but then what will this lead to? Will it lead to... uh, one building creates all the protein for Australia or will lead to meat becoming niche or will lead to a pendulum swing against the vegans and vegetarians. So we don't know. So we try to figure out what are the implications and thus we go to scenarios and that's, that becomes very interesting. So we don't know the future. So in the design, let me design for alternatives. So with the government of Egypt, they said, well, let's develop our natural manufacturing strategy. I don't know the answers. We got together the best and brightest and stakeholders and said, okay, here are four different futures. If we do nothing, what happens? It's where the gap expands between men and women. We become poorer. But we know in organizations that, okay, let's do something. What's marginal change? Marginal change, well, let's, instead of focusing on Europe, let's focus on Africa. So for 100, for 100 million to 1 billion customers. Then you go further. What's adaptive change? Let's, what would it look like if Egypt left with 3D printing, artificial intelligence? And this became what they called the golden key. How do we open up innovation? So you find a story behind the scenario. And the coolest one for me was Alibaba transformation. And then we had the head of, head of textile, head of tourism. And they said, well, for us, this means normally we think innovation comes from the big companies. In Alibaba manufacturing, Alibaba innovation, we give AI to the poorest of the poor. The person on the street selling fruit, the person selling trinkets, they now have real-time access to information. So this is scenarios that are led and all scenarios and futures have power implications. And so this goes to the last part, which is the actual narrative, the metaphor. What's our new story? So one fantastic group we were working with in Australia on mental health and suicide 
So we did all this work and then we asked ourselves, what's the, what's the current story? So we want healthier citizens. We want more well-beings. But our story is a world of roadblocks. So police don't talk to social worker, don't talk to hospital, don't talk to nurses. We don't collect the data. We don't really know what's going on. What's the early predictor for mental illness, suicide, et cetera. So here's where we do emerging issues. One Japanese city is already looking at using emerging issues and AI for early prediction of mental illness. Yeah. So we get out of the game. So then I said, okay, that's who we are today. What's a better story? And so the better story, they said, is creating the data tree. And suddenly you get the idea. So data is like a living, growing tree. We're finding all the parts are speaking to each other. So AI-enabled mental health system, but the metaphor is actually well-being, tree, it's nature, it's connected, it's ecological, as opposed to industrial cars, roads getting stuck. So the stories need to free us. So I was working in a personal level too. And this is a recent story. I was working, one, one of my colleagues was working with someone. And this was a very difficult situation. And I said, okay, you know, you do the normal, what do we do? Do we get her fired? Do we get him reposted? And there's all that discussion, right? And there's always a tough employee in every organization. And so the metaphor, I said, so what's the metaphor? They said, ah, handcuffed, I'm handcuffed. And many people in organizations feel that way. You can't really do that because the board's going to get angry at you. You can't do that because HR director will get angry. And you're trying to find a solution to innovation and you can't handcuffed. Then we take them on the inner journey process. You know, we close our eyes, we visualize where we wish to be. What's the better story? And the story that emerged was community is the key. Mm. And suddenly this freed the person. You think it's your problem. It's not. It's a community problem. So now instead of you trying to do everything, me trying to do everything, him trying to do everything, you work in the community and they find solutions. Now, the critical part, as we all know, community helps, but there are power structures in organizations, power differentials. And finding the final metaphor that led to solution for all the employees happier, everyone's happier, was contact the key holder. And so this became yeah. being stuck. Community is the key. Find the key what's holder. The key? Make the shift. Yeah. And then you say, if community is the key, what's my strategy? How do I design? Then you finally say, find the king holder, key holder, what do I do? So reality becomes led by deep story, as opposed to reality being led to all the problems I have today. So story informs and creates the future. Yeah. So fascinating. I want to link up sort of two things that you've touched on there, talking about you know, you mentioned 10 countries, you are, I mean, you hold roles in at least four different geographies at the moment. Um, and, you know, what is the role of politics in futures right now? Like what, where, where are we? This is probably one of the most interesting, in some cases, frightening moments when it comes to politics around the world. How are even governments using this thinking or even you influencing governments to use this kind of thinking? Yeah, this is, so let me do four levels. Yeah. And most are beyond me. So let me, so one is galactic. Uh, this, you know, this is really outside of Earth. So the framework is a physicist called Nikolai Kardashev. And he said, where are we now historically? He said, we're what's called type zero civilization. We have high energy needs, but the energy needs 
pollute nuclear fossil fuels. And we're divided by religion, ethnicity, country, we're tribal. If you take energies that can destroy with tribal politics, where does that lead to in a thousand years? We know the story. It's total destruction. So he says, his question is weird. Why haven't we had empirical, verifiable first contact? Mm. He says, the reason why, given there's billions of probably civilizations in the cosmos with intelligence, we've not had first contact because they all come to a situation where they need energy, but they're tribal and they blow themselves up. So that's why we haven't had first contact because they all messed up. Then his question they're, they're all having their own kind of infighting situations and they yeah. can't get it. Yeah. And they have a nuclear explosion or climate change, Earth, the planet burns down. And I think that's that's good structural thinking. Mm. So what's his solution? Well, go towards renewables, free energy from the sun, from many other ways, and develop global governance. Just as if you have four cities in Australia fighting, we say, well, no, you need a state level. States are fighting, you need federal level. Countries are fighting, you need global level. All problems we know, whether gender inequity, climate change, poverty, viruses spreading, they cannot be solved by one locality. So he says the solution is global governance with renewables. Then you move to a type one civilization. Now, then you have risk from planets. So then you need astrophysics from asteroids. You need anticipatory methods to look at danger coming. You move to a type two civilization where you get energy throughout the other solar system. Eventually, over a thousand years, your energy needs get so high, you move and become virtual or you become spiritual. So the reason why spiritual civilizations throughout the cosmos don't contact us is because there's no need. And the virtual ones were not evolved enough. So that's one way of thinking. So the conclusion is there is yes, we need to change our energy systems and our governance systems. So UNESCO, where I'm a chair at, my colleague Rio Miller says, no, we need anticipatory systems throughout in energy, in gender, in health. We say, here are the problems coming, here's the solutions. So countries are doing that. Finland has a council for future generations. Sweden, a uh, minister for the future. Uh, Malaysia has a whole range of network futures work going on. Singapore is a center for strategic foresight. Asian Development Bank is now trying to move from infrastructure to knowledge using futures. So we're seeing that at national levels and organizational levels. But to your point, they're not linked. We're not developing a global anticipatory brain. Here's the problems. Here's our solutions. Because as you suggest, it gets divided by politics. Having worked with dozens of local shires throughout Australia and spoken to hundreds of mayors, I remember one meeting, and I won't tell you which shire, uh, it was going strangely. (laughs) And the mayor and his 15 councillors, they were just looking at me like I'm a total weirdo. I was talking about scenarios and climate change. And, and they're like, who brought this guy in? He's responsible for this. And, and the mayor just started to do this. And I said, uh, what's going on? You really hate this stuff. And so two things happened. One, we had to link information to personal journey. Yeah. So then I said, let's talk about let, that. Because I had the crime data for his uh, shire for 2030, 2040. I said, let me talk about you. What are you doing in 2030? Then he described his birth for future, running safely. All the buildings have green gardens. People are connected. Technology is there, but you don't see it. Safe, connected, 
green, smart communities. And I said, okay, if that's what you want, then that's why we're doing this. If you do nothing, I can promise you by 2030, you're going to have violence, high crime, disconnected people, emotional fatigue. And he got it straight away. He said, this project is happening. Now, after me, another one of the counselors came up to me. He said, okay, you got the mayor. Did you see the other counselors? And I go, what's the issue? He goes, well, he was polite. He said, basically, he said, I'm stupid. And, and I said, okay, let's assume that. How do I get smart? He goes, you're thinking they care. And I said, what do you mean? He said, their core need is to be reelected. And then I understood. It's obvious, but he'd be okay. So then I said, how do I link the 2030 vision with reelection? And they're, they're lying. They said, look, I have this 2030 vision, but I'm not in power. Who implements? So we said, here's how the vision can help you gain federal funding, state funding, make your citizens happy. So you need to anticipate not just where they are today, but the changing needs of your citizens. So politics is at the galactic solar level. It's at the earth level. It's at the national level. And it's very much the personal level. Yeah. This is the renegotiation of reality. What's challenging for us is we had, here's the way reality is in the industrial world. You get your job, you're happy. You get your marriage, you're happy. Everyone has one, two genders, you're happy. It was a very strict world. There was a whole range of alternative genders, alternative futures, alternative politics. That in fact, you can be a freelancer, multiple careers. This kind of disruption we've seen at the end of the industrial era and the emergence of a new era. So we're in that phase where people feel anxious. What is this new era? How do I play a role in it? Gramsci, the great Italian thinker, said, in transitional times, there's morbid symptoms. And morbid symptoms are things like pandemics, are things like the anti-vaxxer, conspiratory movie, the Trump thugs, etc. They show the systems breaking down instead of going towards a preferred vision of you know, humanity, a greener planet, they go to tribalism. So our role in futures as a political process is to help them feel safe and secure so they can help the planet move forward. Our hope with organizations to say it's being changed. Where do you wish to go? Where are the opportunities? And also, you know, what are the risks? The CFO is not going to do futures yeah. to make the better planet. He or she wants to know one thing, risk mitigation, and where are the possibilities for profit. So we have to help them reduce risk and create the spaces for innovation. And that's often always as, you know, it's designing a different future. I mean, this, the, the piece that you've talked about there as well, that we've got different governments who are really taking this seriously and are looking at this and obviously organisations that you're working with as well, but we're not yet joined up and that's the next step. It's looking at some of these challenges from a global perspective is the only way we're going to overcome those kind of wicked problems that you're talking about. You know, so I mean, just, just, like for, this, so just yeah. jumping in for a second, imagine COVID started, we had a really global governance yeah. system. It, it wouldn't resolve in a month. Yeah. But we didn't have that, and now we have, I mean, it's terrifying. But the vaccination story as well, that's so interesting that you put that. I mean, that is one of those stories. She said that is one of those really positive stories of partnership and the speed that we can move at with technology when we don't have red tape and all the approvals that kind of come in, you know, normally in the kind of pharmaceutical wheel. 
We showed that we can actually do that and they did it. But then you also get, as you said, that kind of shadow narrative of anti-vaxxers not trusting that because it moves so quickly that we do that. But what are you... What are you really optimistic about? Like what excites you about people sort of taking this work seriously? So there's, there's a number of issues. I remember one workshop I did at one country about preferred futures. One of the participants, she just broke into tears. And I was like, you know, for example, did I say something wrong? You know? And she goes, no, I have been never given space to ask that question. In her culture, it was like, you know, Confucius knows best, father knows best, brother knows best. It was a space I have the right to my vision of the future. So that that's, I really enjoy that. Mm. Two, once you've done that work, then there's a sense what's not working today. And so the normal response is anger, which we're okay with. But then response two is, if this is not working, how do I design the better future? So one is the visioning, opening up emotions towards hope and excitement. Two is then, well, let's take this seriously. This is not just about sending heart signals, hearts to friends. Yeah. This is the design part. How do we design better health systems? So that gets very exciting. People move from no power to some power where they're part of co-designing. And that becomes part three. So I know for years we've been talking about prosperity, people, planet, purpose. And so, you know, prosperous planet, people, inclusion, uh, planet, green, purpose. We know organizations do better when they have a purpose. For me, it's best when it's a spiritual purpose, all-inclusive, but it doesn't really matter. But the part that's jumped in more and more, which is hard for us to do, is partnership. And so every health system I work with, is, of course, it's precision medicine, personalized medicine, preventive medicine. But none of this is possible unless I'm partnering with other health systems and is participatory. So this becomes the next phase. And the reality is I'm not a great person to partner with. I know I get into here's the way I watch it. And most of us do that. So at Meta Future School, we have two courses. Course one has become a futurist, futures 101, right? Methods and tools, case studies, enjoy. But course two is almost more important. Once I develop that vision, there's going to be conflict between one world and the other world, between individuals who have stake in that future. What skills do I need to move from avoiding conflict, conflict resolution to conflict transformation? So my colleague, Ivana Milevich, she runs that course. And then you're getting people together and say, look, I'm angry at you, I'm angry at me, I'm angry about the past. Yes, yes, yes. But the next step is let's use the future based on shared and not shared visions to resolve conflict. As we move from an industrial to a knowledge economy, to an AI economy, to a 3D printer economy, clearly the thing that will also emerge is intense conflicts. And we're seeing that already with Vax, anti-Vax. And you know, I had, how do I then use conflict resolution to move us in the same direction? Now, sometimes we know we can't, right? The state has to come in, we're gonna protect the weak and vulnerable. It doesn't matter what you think, here's the science. And other times you think, okay, that's true. How do I get them on board? Some countries said, okay, you get a thousand euros or 10 euros, or you get it. Now there's a million dollar vaccine in the Aussie Lottery. style, right? Lottery, yeah. <laughs> Every culture has their narrative, right? The, mm. the narrative here is so the lottery. So there's something to be studied in that, isn't it? The incentives that were put in place around yeah. the vaccine. Yeah. 
So th this is where we use, in terms of designing, we go from politics, helping to design and understanding conflict and use that as a way to move forward. So that gives me hope. There's methods and tools. People move from, I can't do anything about the future, increase my ability, mm -hmm. find methods and tools, start to design. But more and more, I'm convinced it won't work as we partner with other groups. So again, with mental health groups I've worked with, mm. it's okay. I can't do this without Google being on board because I need their data information. So with small players, who do I partner with? Mm. Just see so many different levels of application that you're talking about here. I want to... Um, I want to take it back a little bit to understand more, and it's not something that you're talking about and looking at at the moment, this concept of the 500-year future. Tell us about that. What is that and how can people use that lens to think about how they're living today? So one is very much designed from in Indigenous epistemology, right? Don't think about one, go seven generations ahead. So if that's the case, then it's what world do I want to live in? And clearly most people, given the uncertainty, will argue, as John Rawls said, for a world with greater equity. If I don't know who I'll be in seven generations, what world do I want? Well, of course, I want more equity. I want more green, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of imagination. The second part going out 500 years is at one level, it's individuals acting. But we also know there's a deep structures. So a book I did was on this Asian philosopher, P.R. Sarkar, the Norwegian philosopher Johan Galton, we asked, what are the deep patterns of change? And pattern one is linear. It will just keep on getting better, more technology, more development, et cetera, et cetera. And that was a classic Western view. It goes from religion to reason to science. Pattern two was actually there's pendulums. In the US, Obama then shifted to Trump. In Asia, we had in Iran, we had rule of the Shah and rule of the Ayatollahs. So you see this pendulum in organizations, you get extreme centralization, then what happens? The consultants come in and they go towards extreme decentralization. So pendulums are there all the time. So it's not just linear, we see these shifts. Another thing we see is cycles. Spring, summer, fall, winter. And you can see the shift across human history. So merely saying the next 500 years will be more AI, more space. I mean, that's just silly. There'll be swings back and forth. And there's cycles. So if reality is cyclical, one group gets into power for Sarkar talks about the workers come to power. They don't hold on to power. The warriors come in. Empires, kings, dynasties. Then intellectuals come in with religions, with renaissance, with art and science. And then, well, they need to make the system work. Capitalists come in and run everything, but they overexploit, and then the cycle starts again, the workers come back. And so then if we think about 500 years, it's important not to get lost in one future, but to see these deep changes, linear, cyclical pendulum. And of course, for me, the most powerful shape is the spiral. How do I hold on to what's truly valuable with this nature, relationship, spirit, and understand their cycles? So we keep some progress. So this is what people are trying to think about in terms of the next five years. For me, I can easily see year 2500, we'll have a planetary system. It will be 
very green because we need nature. It'll be very high tech. We need high tech. It'd be very gender equitably because a bird needs two wings to fly. My colleague, Mazlana Ottman, I've quoted her many times. She goes, look, evolution favors the efficient and design work, right? If it's inefficient, get rid of it. So how do we design for an efficient planet? Clearly, inequity doesn't help. Clearly, nation states don't help. So if this becomes family years, where do we wish to go? Are there patterns that support that? And asking ourselves, okay, let's start to imagine that. Now, that's for many very difficult, but then you ask yourself, okay, let me make it personal. Elise Boulding talked about, go back, your mother, your grandmother. Mm. And so in my case, my grandmother lost five siblings due to smallpox. So when I meet people who challenge some of the science, I said, no, 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 I, I remember. You know, I know what it was like for her. My great-grandmother died from the, the plague. Mm. And, I, and people in our, you know, so this is the memory of the past can be a huge asset. Mm. It can be also traumatic when we go back to wars and tra- tribalism. But Bowling says, let's go back in history to our grandmother or grandfather's time and go forward 100 years. Mm-hmm. And yours is more provocative. Let's go even further. What would that system look like? So I know with health system- one of my questions actually around that, like what role does the past play in this work and the thinking that you do? So one is it's critical. We're looking at past patterns of change. Yeah. The analog of the futurist is the historian. So we really want to understand what happened before and use that. If you watch the TV series Foundation, right, that's based on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. You expand too far, you become brutal, brutal, the colonies rebel, and it starts all over. So that's the other part of the past is, is trauma a friend or is trauma an enemy? Mm. So this work by Franz Kafka, rewritten by Shapiro, and he talks about there's a creature afraid of the future. So it burrows in the earth because there's enemies there. As it's burrowing, it no longer knows now. Is the enemy the digging itself or it actually is an enemy above ground? So now consciousness, time, self, space are no longer a friend. They're an enemy. That person has now created a reality where everything is the enemy. So the past there of the enemies chasing the burrow now become present in the moment and are no longer a friend. Mm. So our goal is to make consciousness, mind, spirit, thoughts, a friend, so the future becomes a friend, time becomes a friend, a place to create a better world. Almost Freudian psychoanalyst stuff that you're talking about there, is that? The narrative part takes us to story. Yeah. So when we're working with organizations, they want to know what are the risks to, of climate change to our portfolio, the risks of 3D printing, the risk. They want to understand technological and social risks. And we say, yes, that's the case. Move to opportunities, yeah. move to scenarios. But then someone says, well, we tried this and nothing happened. And then you say, well, what's the story of your company? I had one amazing organization. This one was those war stories. And before we used to just do objective scientific trend analysis and you know, scenarios, it was still subjectivity. But this conversation really taught me the value of narrative. So we came up with their scenarios, their strategies. Then I said, okay, who are you as a story? 
And they said, uh, you're Cinderella. So I said, who's Prince Charming? This is the government, because the government funds us every year. So I said, okay, how do we move out of that? Because if they don't fund you, you're at high risk. Mm. And then we started a conversation around, let's rethink that story. And one of the vice presidents in the room, she got very angry. And she sabotaged. I mean, she was very tough to all of us. And finally at 3.30, I asked her, who are you? She looked at me and she says, can't you see? I said, well, actually, I can't. <laughs> she says, can't you see? I'm the wicked stepsister. And so we understood straight away. She meant to sabotage the process. The day ended, the seal loved it. Everyone loved it. But I knew, of course, the project was dead. She had that awareness, that self-awareness. She knew that was the person and couldn't even move past that. That's, yeah. yeah. And so me, I failed as a facilitator of futurist. She was who she was. They were who they were. There was only one person who failed. That was me. So now within that, once we've done how the world is changing, do we have a story that allows us to enable, to create, to design, to empower? And that doesn't happen at the rational level. That's very deep at the unconscious story level. There's archetypes at play. Yeah. This is so fascinating. I'm, I'm want to use the most of the time that we've got left. So I'm being really choosy with where yeah. we go. I mean, I can give you, I mean, with large international organizations, we have yeah. one. And so they were wondering why when they send out reports, surveys to their scientists, why they're not answering that. Mm. And they said, so what's the best design of a futures process? And so I said, well, I can design one based on our knowledge about the past, but first tell me your story about who you are. And so one group said, well, we're the toothless tiger. Mm. So if you're a toothless tiger, why would risk mitigation opportunity creation make a difference? Another said, we're an old blind crippled elephant. My God. <laughs> and, 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 these are, and these are really, really brilliant people. Mm. And then so they said, so our foresight work is interesting, but so what? So then you have to have the new narrative. So the toothless tiger, they change the story to the guard dog. Guard dog barks if dangers come. Guard dog is loved by the community. Guard dog is someone who keeps us safe. Now you have a story. With the elephant, they said we're an octopus. Brains are not in central headquarters. Mm. Brains are everywhere. So now the person in the field, they have an incentive to contribute because their story, their data is valued. Yeah. So this is using narrative to change the story. Otherwise, I've been in projects, one project on energy futures, they spent over $400,000 on the foresight part. Then when I asked them, well, can you make the shift? They just couldn't. And we said, what's your story? They said, well, we're like Queen Elizabeth, the ship. We have a monopoly where regal making a shift is near impossible. Mm -hmm. So we know AI is going to come. We know solar is going to come. We know the national energy markets are going to change. We know we need apps for real-time energy information. We know that conceptually. But emotionally, we believe we're in the 18th century. And the empress will reign forever. Now, so what do you do then? If you give this amazing vision, they'll say yes. Within week one, nice vision, there's an implementation. So then think, well, how do we find a story 
that matches who they are but moves in the shift. And the story was the tugboats. Mm. So the tugboats moves the ocean liner, not dramatically, because that's not going to happen. You can have your bold vision for 2100. It's not going to happen. So the little shift was five tugboats. Tugboat one is a solar plant. Tugboat two was an app for real-time energy use. Tugboat three, three was, which they actually implemented, was using uh, smart sewage and developing bacteria to clean the sewage. So they actually have gone on this process. This is so interesting. It's like, I can imagine that this use of narrative and metaphor is one way to get that alignment with leaders to get on board, but also as a communication tool to bring the rest of the organisation across what we're doing. Because I think there's sometimes it's so hard for people who are working in the organisation to know the direction, especially if it is a radical new shift and you're doing it presumably, you know, where you come in is that really early part of an organisation's transformation or when it's been unsuccessful and we've got to do something different this time. 100% right. Now, the other part of it, which I think you're, you're hinting at, is if it's a story, it's just words. Mm. So there's a weakness in the narrative. So this is where the accountants and CFO step in. So what's the new measurement? Mm. So one country we're working with, they were working on uh, their problem was obesity and diabetes. Why? Because it was they have subsidies for foods, rice, white rice, sugar, etc., oil. And so they became very rich, but the deep culture was still about sitting at home watching TV. Yeah. So they said, what's the story was, uh, we live to eat. I said, okay, what's your new story was eat to live. Now, now we need a systemic strategy. Great story. How are you going to make that real? So then it was stop, change, we subsidize health foods. We subsidize organics. We subsidize a whole range of new federal measurements, which, in, which decrease junk food, increase healthy food, yeah. which incentivize exercise. Now, then they need a new measurement. Are we just measuring where last? What's a new measurement? They came with a measurement by 2030, we're number one in rankings in the region on wellness. So now we can monitor over 10 years. Yeah. If after year five, it didn't happen. Well, I'm sorry, Minister of Health. You, you know, you need to go. New story, new systems. Here's how we're going to measure progress. Otherwise, nice story, but the accountant saw it was fake. And everyone knows it's yeah. fake then. Yeah, exactly. Just like a vision with nothing against it. What are the steps towards that? I'd love to really hear a little bit about your personal journey as a futurist. How did you find yourself? You know, how did you first start out in this journey? How did you find yourself here? Because I think fundamentally we need more people doing this work, which is why it's so amazing that you're teaching the MetaFutures course as well. You know, particularly in design and innovation, it's an enormous place for it. But even for people working in communications, I could imagine in organisations, you know, as you said, in mental health, there's, a, you know, um, there's an enormous role that this kind of work and practice could play. Can you tell us how, how it came about for you? I think I was in ninth grade and our high school teacher said, you have to read all of these books to pass. And I thought, oh, God, I'm not going to be able to do it. I'd rather play out, play basketball and, and soccer. But okay, I'm going to have to pass this class. So I just got involved and I started reading science fiction, Asimov's Foundation, Ray Bradbury, Marshall Chronicles, and suddenly this imagination of a different world showed up. And then when I moved to Hawaii, from Malaysia, high school in Malaysia, Hawaii, 
And then uh, I met this one professor, Jim Dater, and he talked about future to alternative futures, genomics, AI, uh, partnership society, green society. And then it became really fascinating, meaning I can't change today, but I can start to imagine a different future. And so he had courses and I spent 10 years working with the Hawaii justice system. So he had an internship for six months and I never left. I stayed there 10 years till they finally kicked me out. And so the eighties, we were doing research on the legal rights of robots, on mediation instead of litigation, on a whole range of alternatives to traditional legal systems. What would it look like if the legal system that uses precedence was fully automated, uh, a judicial system where judges did philosophy ethics. So that went from fascination, a degree in the field, and then more and more that shifted me. And then in 1994, moved to Brisbane. And there was doing these lectures on futures. And one of my colleagues, Tony Stevenson, who brought me there, who's passed away, he said, this is great, but no one understands a word of what you're saying. And, and so then became, how do I communicate this in ways that are intelligible. So then it went from critical theory, science fiction, to narrative, to stories, to scenarios. And my test was always, I had young kids who suffered through this. If it works for a five-year-old, then it will work for the minister, the prime minister, the CEO. So the approach had to be aligned to every level. And when I was working in Taiwan, I still worked there. My students there said, this is great, but can you give us just seven sentences? I said, oh my God, you want me to take 30 years of work in seven sentences? They go, yes. So I did. So I just took seven sentences. They became seven ways to question the future. What happened? What will happen? What might happen? Where do you want it to happen? How did you create it? And it was a very simple process. And so I'm very thankful to all the partners on the way, you know, who say, okay, here's what you're doing is right. Here's what you're doing is wrong. And from design thinking, what I learned was meet the client where they're at. I remember in double, I gave this horrifying speech on uh, city futures. And the audience just got drunk through it. I had 550 mayors and counselors and planners. And, you know, it was too disrupting for them. And later one that the mayor said, look, we already feel challenged in rural Australia. Mm. You, didn't make, you didn't make us feel safe. You pushed it so far. Our only solution was more alcohol. Mm. And later they said, can we buy your book? Sorry, we, you know, we yelled out things during your speech. You know, oh, it was God, all that I've stuff. been in those. I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And you're like, what are you doing? Oh, and my God. But you, I mean, you're blaming yourself there as well. I mean, but that was my know, learning. Like, you know? I yeah. mean, they're who, they're who they are. Yes. One mayor you're said, right. here's my annual salary, and you want me to consider all these issues. Yeah. My mistake was the ministry staff was good. They just ran. They could see it was turning back. And uh, I should, I think I should have run, but you know, I had signed a contract. <laughs> you're sweating run. and you're like, oh my God, how much longer to go? Bad. Yeah, It was really bad. Yeah. But then my later insight was uh, meet them where they're at. Mm. And I should have just stopped right there. I said, look, this feels very confronting for everyone. Let me stop what actually is going on. Yeah. So that would have been the moment from what's wrong to what's possible. Mm -hmm. So more and more for me, futures has a mindful meditative connecting dimension yeah and so when I, I run these with young kids and it's always trying to find out for them there's some anxiety where am i going is the right place and then working with them 
to move towards a better space. Yeah. So this is now futures as technology, futures as innovation. I close my eyes. Where am I in 2030? That is such a great lesson, though, that war story that you've just shared, even for anyone working in an organisation that wants to bring new thinking or, you know, these kinds of techniques or even I mean, in our world as well, just design thinking is sometimes the same thing. Sometimes it's just too confronting, you know, or new innovation, same thing. So it's just that how do you stop, pause, find out where people are, meet them where they are and then find a way, even if it's a much smaller breakthrough than what you'd initially planned for that presentation, at least it's something rather than people putting their guard up. Yeah, there's worldviews in the room. Yeah. The method I use is CLA, causal alert analysis. Mm. That's just find the story, find the worldviews, change the system, change the measurement. Always work at all four levels. Yeah. If it's only data, that's useful. If it's only system useful, then it's data, system, deep culture, and deep story. Yeah. If I can move them all those four, I have a greater chance of making the shift they've asked for. Yeah. You've got a TED Talk on this, don't you? Yeah, yeah, it was really yes. fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So people should check that out, actually. So speaking of that, so there's a TED Talk just on that very topic that you mentioned there from a few years ago that people can access on YouTube. And tell us about how how people can work with you potentially or attend the course, or I'm sure there are lots of people tuning in live and also, you know, who'll be listening to this later that will be really keen to, to learn more. So. So one is, as part of UNESCO chair work, it's in Malaysia at the Wellbeing Center for Sustainability and Humanity, is we have the Asia Pacific Futures Network. So throughout this region, people doing futures, but want to connect with other futures, whether in Namibia, in Fiji, throughout Australia, Malaysia, Singapore, Seoul, et cetera, Taiwan. So there's a network people can connect to. My colleague, Jos Wagner, he's kind of uh, stewarding that. Then we have MetaFuture School, and this was, a, this was a bit of a segue we did when COVID started. But suddenly flights stopped, and my colleague Adam Sharp said, look, let's take this and go online. And we quickly did that, and we came up with Become a Futures, Futures 101. Mm-hmm. And then my partner at MetaFuture, Ivana Milevich, she created uh, Conflict Transformation Futures. So one is the network, two, we have those courses. And then on our own website, there's hundreds of free articles and other books. And then, you know, there's a, I would say there's an ecology of futures. So my old story was planting seeds, inner and outer transformation. And then you try many of these and say, well, let's nurture some of these trees. So it's going back, part of the foresight, did it work? And people 10 years later often call me. So I had no idea what you were talking 10 years ago. <laughs> Crisis hits, oh my God. Where was our risk mitigation work? Where was our scenario work? Mm. And then I moved to, well, this is creating a forest, a foresight. And now in our last meeting, I realized that metaphor has worked, but I have to find a new one because nature is great, but we're in a world of revolutionary technology. And where's the Pacific Ocean as you see in the backdrop there? So my colleagues in the Pacific say, yeah, but the Pacific is also a continent. It's an ocean continent. So it's bringing together partnership of ocean, forest, technology, humans, and spirit. That becomes the greater co-evolution. Mm. There's many places to enter, whether MetaFutures, MetaFuture.org, MetaFuture School, the Asia Pacific Futures Network. 
and there's and so many other people doing futures work throughout the region and globally. Incredible. And you've mentioned a few names as well that we've got to go back and link to as well. There's, this has just been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Sahail. Oh, it's really pleasure. been, really just been a joy. I've had so many moments that I can barely contain them across I this. appreciate you were, you were present to me. Uh, interviews with people read a list. I actually, I just start to go dump. I mean, I lose my focus, but you were engaged and you got me totally into this side you're just fantastic at this thank you so much oh this has just been a joy it's impossible not to it's just so absorbing I, I, a couple of times i forgot my role and i forgot there were possibly other people listening to this conversation it's just us which is always so good so thank you again and i hope this is the beginning of many conversations and best of luck with all of you fantastic work. great i'll connect you with apfn there's yeah. do a monthly on a particular topic whether it's 3d printing or asian confederation or my colleague Sergio Brodsky is doing marketing in the future. There's lots of, or, you know, gender equity in 2040. So there's some really good topics that people who are content expertise can jump in. This is amazing. I'm definitely going to take you up on that. I love that. I just want to wrap up and give a shout out to my colleague, Parika Verma, um, who has been on your course, is the person that introduced you to us raved about it and still uses some of the techniques in our team. Um, and she also, she was going to join me in the interview today, but she had something else that she had to do. And so she sent across those questions. So thank you, Pariki, you're a star. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks everyone. And we'll see you next time. It's my pleasure.